Father in heaven, thank you for Sabbath school time and for your word, just that we get to know you. Uh, please bless us with your wisdom. Uh, send your spirit to, to guide our thoughts and, and uh, definitely our conclusions, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, I have a little worksheet. Hopefully you have a pen, because this will require work. But it's okay if you don't, because I brought more. Pencil here. So if I miss one, let me know, um, and, and if you have a question, let me know. This is kind of in the form of a talk rather than a, like an interactive study, um, but, uh, but feel free to go, what? <laughs> and, uh, and we can have some interaction and stuff. Um, it's not like designed exactly that way, but that's all right. Um, this was first uh, put together in, as a, an assignment for a class on the development of SDA theology, and uh, so the subject is the Trinity. Um, I thought I was going to do a little bit different um, discussion, but a couple things came up, and I wasn't able to do as much of the research as I wanted. Um, and, and I would have left you without conclusion, and that would have been a terrible thing. <laughs> so this one's, this one's a little more developed tonight, and I think um, still a really fascinating subject. Um, we won't look at how the Adventist Church developed this theology, because it, it, it was one that we struggled with, and we still struggle with. In fact, um, there's a group of people, well, really, there's groups all over the world that um, believe different things about the Trinity. And we'll touch uh, on a couple of those, as you can see, heresies in the early church. Um, and, and so there's Adventists all over the world that have different ideas about the Trinity and, and the nature of God. Um, but uh, it's been pretty well established. In, in the Adventist church, and so I think most people don't really pay a lot of attention to it. But it has a, a significant impact on other aspects of theology, specifically our understanding of salvation. And uh, so I just, uh, we'll dive in and, and uh, we'll get to that, so. It's actually been going since we were singing, so I'm good. <laughs> so the doctrine of the Trinity has been under review seemingly since Christian church began to be formally organized back in the first century AD. Um, the disciples, they didn't really argue about it, but as soon as they died, pretty much the rest of the church began to deal with the various ideas and heresies that came, came up. So uh, the first one, some would say that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are exactly one. That's the first two blanks. They're exactly one personal being, um, so exactly one being, expressed in different ways. Um, so different modes, you might say. This is called modalism. So the first four are exactly one being and modalism. And just modal just means God is being expressed in as Jesus or as the Father or as the Holy Spirit. He's one being. But, but three modes. Others said that the Holy Spirit wasn't a person, uh, just a power, that's the, the next blank, just the power of God. Others said that Jesus was a created being, and that's also known as Arianism. Um, Arianism is spelled A-R-I-A-N-ism. So down through the years, emperors, councils, these groups of bishops would get together, um, they'd, they'd have uh, of course, from Constantine on, excuse me, the emperor was um, involved in doctrinal disputes, and there was a lot of doctrinal disputes about this subject. 
And so you had the followers of Arian, uh, Arius, you had the followers of Sibelius. Sibelius was a modalist. He, think, he thought that it was just one person, three modes. Arian, uh, Arius said that, that the Holy Spirit and God were, um, were or the Father were the two beings, and Jesus was created, um, and they would fight. And then there's this other group of people that believed in the Trinity. And, and when I say fight, we're talking about literal war. You know, in the, um, uh, the prophecies in Revelation, where it says, in Daniel, um, it says that the, um, it says that there is, uh, good morning. I couldn't find a ride to take me, so I had to ride my bike here. Oh, oh. <laughs> glad you got here. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to leave in. 20 minutes, so. Yeah, no problem. We're just, at the yeah. Village, um, University. University Church. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we're talking about the Trinity. I'm just doing a little talk and kind of filling the blanks. Um, you can look over the shoulder if you want to grab the first few. Um, anyway, so you know how the there's the, the beast with the ten horns and three of them are plucked up? Um, do you know what was significant about those three uh, nations that were plucked up by the Roman Catholic Church? They were Arians. They were Christians, but they believed that Jesus was a created being. And this was such heresy that the Catholic Church, um, in, in establishing its power um, through this guy Justinian, they destroyed these Arian nations, killing lots and lots of people, simply because they had this belief. So that's, when I say that they had these fights, they, they had lots of fights. And, and it was interesting because it swayed from one side to the other. Um, Constantine was actually an Arian, and the majority of the church was at the time. They didn't believe that Jesus was, was God, well, at least that he was, um, had, had existed forever. And, and then they would swing back the other direction with a new emperor, a new council, and they, and they are struggling to find some, some balance. Now, it may be that you, like the vast majority of Christians, really could care less about this discussion at all. <laughs> Maybe it's like, who cares if God is three individual persons in one, or if he's one person expressed in three modes, or if he's, um, you know, if one of them has lived longer than the other, who cares? And I, I have to admit that most of my life I've been in that just don't care group. I mean, as long as Jesus is my savior and the Holy Spirit is the power to salvation, then we're good. It doesn't matter what it means, right? It doesn't matter the details. But I, I think that it does matter. There are some things that we can uncover in the subject of the Trinity that can really help us um, as we think about God and his nature and, um, and the issue of salvation. And, and the truth is that what we believe about God always impacts um, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our actions. Um, what we believe makes a difference. Um, so uh, the Bible, it, it's not really a catechism. You know what a catechism is? Mm -hmm. It's a question with an answer. That's the idea. And it's a teaching mode um, that uh, helps you to uh, get exactly what the author intends. The Bible doesn't do that. It's, it's not a here's exactly what you should believe kind of a book. It doesn't have a specific set of, of doctrines. It is not set up for dogma. It's really just a story about how God has interacted with mankind from the Garden of Eden to the restoration of the earth. That, that's the story of the Bible. And we, we get pieces of information about God, and we form beliefs and doctrines from those pieces of information. Now, the subject of the Trinity is not, it's not specifically laid out 
Uh, God doesn't say, this is how I am, and make it really easy for us. I mean, it's not, not too difficult um, so that we can't understand, but it's difficult enough <laughs> um, that uh, we've got some confusion on the subject. Now, in the Bible, we, we look at all these stories, and we find three different evidences about God. The first kind of evidence, and this is your next blank, is evidence that God is one. Evidence that God is one. The second is that evidence that God is three persons. Evidence that God is three persons. And then the third is indications of God's three in oneness. I'm not sure if oneness is a word, but I made it up in case it wasn't. Three in oneness. So, for example, in the Ten Commandments, you have a statement of... of, um, God is one. He says, I am the Lord your God. Uh, Then he says, you shall have no other gods besides me. These are personal pronouns. Uh, This is my name forever, my memorial to all generations, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Also, uh, you might have heard of the Shema. It's just the Jewish phrase. Our heroes are all our God is one. Our God is one. So uh, we have all these God is one statements, uh, personal pronouns, singular personal pronouns. And then you have these... um, these other statements that indicate these three distinct persons. For example, in creation, we find God creating, the spirit hovering, and then they say, let us make man in our own image. Uh, later in Genesis, we read about the story of the um, Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says, let us go down and uh, uh, investigate their wickedness. Now, apparently, I'm not a Hebrew grammar guy. I don't know a lot about this, but apparently in Hebrew grammar, like most, they really like to have the same tense, the same number. So, so we don't start out the verse saying, or the, the sentence saying I, um, and then referring to the same individual, say us or we. Um, and that's really consistent throughout the Hebrew language until you get to the discussion of God. And, uh, and you find these statements, like in Isaiah 6, where God says, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Like there's this singular, plural, personal pronoun in the same sentence. And, and that's really odd. It doesn't really work in most, uh, most languages. And especially not in Hebrew. But um, this multiple oneness is a special, it's got a special relationship in the Hebrew language. And where do you think the first multiple oneness is in the, the Bible. At creation. At creation. God makes Adam and Eve, right? And then he says the two will be one. And and so this word for one is um, it's a unique um, a unique word that's not not uh, singular as much as it is unity. The the oneness isn't about number, one number, but it's about unitedness. And, and so you can have in this united idea, um, the, the Hebrew word for like singular one, the number one would be yahid. There's not like a number, um, like in, in Hebrew, there's, there's not a way to write one, two, three, four, five, like a numeric kind of thing. Um, and, and so this idea, the word yahid is like the number one. Um, and, and then the word chad, I'm not probably not saying it right, but chad is the Hebrew word for the, um, 
the plurality uh, of unity, like this, uh, the two will become one, um, is, is that word chat. Um, so we get this idea the Lord isn't singular when it says the Lord our God, he is one in the, the Shema, but, but that God is united. So in marriage you have one plus one equals yeah, and, and in the Trinity, you have one plus one plus one equals one. Yeah, so this, this united idea um, is there. Um, in Psalms, God says, your throne, O God, um, like God is speaking and he, he talks to another God. Um, and then um, in Malachi 3, the Lord says, look, I'm sending my messenger and then the Lord you are, are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. So God himself is talking, and then he, he talks about the Lord going to the temple as his messenger. So there's this clear differentiation um, that, that the Bible has, clearly indicating these multiple personalities, and yet this unity, this, this singleness. Um, in Isaiah 9-6, we find Isaiah pointing to the time when Jesus would come, and he said, a child is given as a gift from the Lord, and yet the child is immediately called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there's, again, just over and over and over again, we find this plurality. So what emerges from, I think, any study of the stories of God in the Bible um, and his interactions with us in, in Earth's history is that God is not one person in three modes, like modalism would suggest. And that he's not two persons with a third created and subordinate demigod, as Arianism would suggest. Those are the next two. Modalism and Arianism are the next two blanks. But that God is three equal and distinct pieces of one whole. God is three equal and distinct pieces of one whole. So um, a worshiper of the God of heaven has to be a monotheist, because it's clear there's only one God. Yet, they can't maintain that there's only one being. And I have to admit that that's a little complicated for my thinking. Um, why wouldn't we think of ourselves as polytheistic? Well, because God says he's one. This unity. And so we have the, the word trinity um, to describe this. The word is just tri, that, that means three, and unity smashed together, right? Like a university. You know, at university, it's like two words packed together. Um, unity and diversity. <laughs> that's, that's university. Uh, so the same idea with trinity, uh, tri-unity. So <clears throat> I, I can't explain this concept, um, and I don't think that we should ever expect that the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present God that we're talking about could be easily explained. Um, for us to know him would be to equal him in time and space and knowledge and power, and that's just not a possibility for a created being to really fully know their creator. I think we can know enough, but, but um, to fully know and understand would be beyond us. In the New Testament, we find the same three-in-one concept being held by the disciples and the apostles. They, they believe this idea. Jesus was baptized as he came out of the water, himself the Son of God, and then the Holy Spirit descended like a dove uh, over him, and the Father says this phrase, this thundering voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in Matthew 12, 28. And, and Jesus, he claims that the kingdom of God has come upon them because he, um, 
he, he heals, he acts, he does everything by the power of the Spirit of God. Um, so there's this united effort. Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit, the power. Um, and then he says that he does nothing except by his Father's direction. So there's this, this united effort in the kingdom of God on earth. In 2 Corinthians 1.21, Paul says that it is God who establishes us with establishes with you us with you in Christ, sorry, and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So in Paul's mind, there's these three personalities. Um, God, all of them involved in the, the salvation process. So, um, you know, God is, the Father is doing something, the Holy Spirit is doing something, Jesus is doing something. And when Jesus told us to baptize, how did he, he tell us to do it? In whose name? All of them, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And, and so all three persons are represented here. Paul even organizes the book of Romans um, based on these three personalities. He, he begins with uh, the judgment from God, justification from Jesus, and life in the Spirit. These, uh, this organization of the whole book of, of Romans. Jude says that we're to pray in the Holy Spirit, remain in God's love as we wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Uh, so there's this, again, three persons in the salvation process. John makes a big deal about proving the divinity of Jesus all throughout um, his book. Um, Philip Carey, talking about this and about the Trinitarian theology, says, The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. There is only one God. so all throughout the New Testament, we've got proving the divinity of Jesus. We've got examples of the Father and the Holy Spirit working with Jesus. We've got this um, concept of the unity and, and oneness, and yet the diversity and individual personhood. All of this mixed together. That's the story that I see in the Bible. Um, but I, I think it's worth at least taking a moment and thinking about the, the heresies um, specifically, well, God the Father has never been really contested. The Father is always God in, in anybody's thinking. If, if you say to a Jehovah's Witness, who um, the Jehovah's Witnesses would be Arianist, Arians, uh, I think you have that later on, but um, I'll come to that in a second. If you say to them, um, Jehovah, they're going to think Father. Because automatically, in their mind, Jehovah, I mean, uh, um, the Father is God. So there's never any question about that. There's just a question about what happens with the other two. Who's the Holy Spirit? Well, let's start with that. Um, It seems to be the case that at some point before creation happened, there was a discussion uh, among the Godhead about how they would interact with their creation and and who would do creation, who would would be involved in that. And so maybe it was voluntary, maybe it was a vote, I don't know how it worked out, but somehow in this discussion, it seems like the father was elected to be the administrative figurehead, um, the CEO, you might say, of the Godhead. Um, the son was selected to be the hands-on creator, um, so those, those blanks, administrative figurehead, and then the second, hands-on creator. And, and, and the redeemer, when sin actually happened. Um, the spirit chose to be the ever-present support system and the power behind creation and salvation. The Holy Spirit seems to be very humble. I don't know if you ever thought about humility in the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit seems to be pretty humble. So what was the blank for the 
ever present. Is it that the spirit is humble, or is the spirit the introvert of the group? <laughs> maybe the introvert, maybe. Well, I mean, when you think about it, um, he inspired the entire Bible, um, and yet not much is written about him. Think of John, the, um, the, the revelator. He, he's writing the whole book of the Gospel of John, and he never says, I wrote this. And, and he even refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Right? And you kind of think of that. That's kind of how the Holy Spirit relates to himself throughout the Bible. When Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, he said that the Spirit would lead us into all truth and teach us about Jesus. While the Spirit's not directly discussed in the Old Testament, we do find the, the word spirit all over the place. Um, so for, for instance, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. Have you heard that before? Discussions of the state of the dead? Because um, some people you know, look at this soul idea. Um, and this is one of those words that's translated spirit or soul. It's ruach. It's 389 times in the Old Testament, so it's, it happens pretty often, but only 123 of those are references to a divine being. Three times it uses the phrase Holy Spirit, um, like Psalms 51, 11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, or Isaiah 63, 10, where it says, yet they grieved his Holy Spirit. Um, another one in Isaiah 63, um, where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Uh, so in really only two places, Isaiah 63, 10, and 11 would be one spot. And in Psalm 51, does it include this idea of Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? But he's also referred to as the Spirit of the Lord and the Spirit of God. And uh, you can find that about 46 times. Um, and, and a bunch of them are connected with this word, ruach. But the, the Spirit isn't some impersonal emanation of God. It's not a power or force um, like Star Wars would might want you to think about um, about God, you know, may the force be with you, or <laughs> whatever they're they're thinking about that is. I'm not sure what their theology might be, but it's not the Holy Spirit isn't a force. Um, but the Bible indicates that He has specific influence, that He has thoughts and feelings. He's uh, called a leader and a judge. He commissions individuals to do specific tasks. He gives spiritual gifts at his own discretion. He empowers and enables, leads, guides, teaches, and encourages. The Holy Spirit is, has a lot of roles that really only an, an individual personal being could have. Um, he's the revealer in God's revelation, the inspiration behind all scripture, and the source of all prophecy. The Holy Spirit is the one indicated in the daily active work of sanctification. So this is the Holy Spirit. I, I think that it's pretty easy for us to dismiss modalism, and we can also um, just nail the last couple of nails in that coffin of modalism when, when you have the Holy Spirit being its own individual person. Um, so the other one is Arianism. Um, You can take that with you if you want. Okay. Um, so Arianism is this idea that Jesus is a created being. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses would be modern-day Arianism, or Arians. Um, because of that, mainstream Christians would dismiss them as, what would we call them? <laughs> Assuming we're mainstream. 
what do most people call Jehovah's Witnesses? Just Mormons, well, pagans, I suppose. Well, we'd call them a cult. They're, they can't be Christian because they don't believe Jesus is God. So they're a cult. They're a, you know, and there's other reasons why we'd call them a cult, but that, that's, they're solidly in that um, mind, in that, that um, category for most Christians, mainly because of this teaching um, that Jesus is a created being. So around the time that Constantine was becoming interested in the Christian faith, uh, the bishops and members of the church were really debating this nature of Christ. Um, did he have a different nature than God the Father, as the scholar Arius suggested, uh, maybe a created being, even if he was the very first of all created beings and he created everything else? Um, that was kind of Arius' suggestion. He, he was created by the Father, but then he created everything else. And uh, Jehovah's Witnesses hold that idea and believe that Jesus is a god. He's, he's like a demigod, an undergod. Um, and, and others were arguing that maybe Jesus was like the modalists would suggest, simply a mode of God's expression as he interacted with humanity. Or, or was it something in between? They're, they're trying to figure this out and, and express it. And, it, and there's a big, a big fight over words. Um, and they'd go back and forth from one extreme to the other. Um, so trying to find a happy medium where Jesus could be a person alongside the Father rather than the exact same person as the Father or an entirely different type of person than the Father was, was this trick. How do you communicate this in language that people can understand? And so they tried all these different words, um, homo, uh, homusios, and I don't know, there's a bunch of, bunch of Greek words that I can't pronounce and don't know. Uh, but they ended up landing on this one, homoousios. <laughs> Come on, somebody, somebody else try saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this word suggests that Jesus was the very same nature as the Father, which means that modalism couldn't be tolerated because Jesus would be, um, thus be a separate person than the Father. Um, but yet Arianism couldn't be tolerated because Jesus was the very same nature as the Father rather than being a created being. So different individual, same stuff. Made of the same stuff, but separate and unique. So the historical back and forth over the nature of Christ is interesting, but in my own evaluation of the doctrine, I can really only consider what Christ said. You know, whatever they said, fine, I don't really care. <laughs> Some council debating over a Greek word is really insignificant, my thinking. But, but here's what Jesus said. He says that he is God. He says that all things were made by him. He claims to, to be life itself. And he takes on himself the prerogatives and authority of the divinity and willingly receives worship, distinct from the angels who refused worship. No angel in the Bible ever received worship. And, and yet, Jesus is happy to receive worship. He forgives sins. No angel in the Bible ever for, forgave sins. He, he claims the prerogatives of God. Jesus distinguishes himself from the Father and the Holy Spirit. He indicates that both are highly involved with his life and ministry, and yet both are separate individuals from himself and from each other. He promises that when he, Jesus, left, he would send a comforter, the Holy Spirit. He told the disciples to wait for the Spirit to fall on them, and when it did, they were given power to spread the gospel. Jesus said that he himself would pray to the Father, and that he did nothing of himself but what the Father told him to do. So, Jesus is God, but not the exact same person as the Father or the Spirit. So modalism, you know, again, it's gone. Nail in the coffin. But also Jesus being the firstborn of creation, 
he cannot be a created being because he himself creates all things. If that's true, then he would have created himself, which is ridiculous. So, so Jesus is self-existent. That's another blank. Self-existent, not created. And, and he clearly takes the prerogatives of God to receive worship. So therefore, Arius can't be correct in his belief that Jesus is a demigod or a superhuman or a created being. Jesus must be fully God, uncreated, divine, self-existent, and worthy of all of our worship. So, so what are the implications of this theology? Um, I think they're really profound as we think about salvation. Uh, first, the fact that God is in himself a tri-unity, um, is a, a single unit made of three distinct persons. It, I think it helps us understand the nature of God and, and really the nature of love. Um, John makes the statement that God is love. So if God were one being, then we could say that God is self-absorbed. If he were two beings, then we could say that he gives love to get love. That's kind of... Uh, now, uh, marriage is, um, is kind of that environment, especially in a selfish w- uh, world that we live in. Um, we, if I give fully to my wife um, in love and kindness and whatnot, then generally I can expect to receive something roughly equal in return. And, and so even though, though that is a, an act of love, it, it's, it's also can be misconstrued as selfish. But the fact that God is three beings in one means that each person in the Trinity gives love to another without the expectation of that love being returned to themselves. The Son loves the Father, the Father loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son, and it kind of goes around in this, in this circle. Selfless love. So I think this informs our understanding of all of his creative acts. Creation for the possibility of selfless expression of love. He, he already exists as an expression of selfless love, and then he creates in order to continue expressing that selfless love. When the Bible says that God made man in his own image, it must have been this selfless love kind of creativity that God was intending. Now the fact that sin entered the picture... If you want the last uh, three, um, it's created love and salvation, okay. the last three blanks. And I've just got one paragraph if you want to stay for, for 20 seconds. Okay, <laughs> sure. So sin enters the picture, breaks this relationship between God and his creation, Lucifer, the third of the angels, Adam and Eve, etc. And no selfish being could fully engage with the selfless love of God. That's just... We've got a break in this relationship. So salvation then becomes a selfless act of God, again, to restore relationship um, and, and love. So only the creator God, whose relationship we damaged, could bridge the gap between us and, and bring us salvation. No created being could take our place and pay our penalty for sin. If there's no trinity, then there's no love. If Jesus is not God, then there's no salvation. So I think the doctrine of the trinity is really important in our understanding of just the fundamental principles of salvation. Really, there is no Christianity if there is no Trinity.